Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Our journalism is powered by you, not by any corporation or government. That means we count on your support to produce our daily news hour. Please make your donation of $5 or $10 or more at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! As we see the increase in asylum seekers into our community, and we see the temperatures dropping, and we know that uh, Title 42 looks like it's uh, going to be called back on um, Wednesday, we felt there was proper time today to call a state of emergency. The Democratic mayor of El Paso, Texas, has declared a state of emergency over concerns the city won't be able to provide shelter and resources to thousands of asylum seekers arriving at the border every day. We'll go to El Paso. Then supporters of imprisoned journalist Mumia Abu-Jamal are hailing a decision by a Philadelphia judge to order the local DA's office to share all its case files with Abu-Jamal's defense team. Could this lead to a new trial? we look at how Qatar and Morocco have been caught bribing members of the European Parliament in a scandal that's rocked Brussels. We'll look at how the bribes impacted Europe's stance on Qatar's human rights record and Morocco's illegal occupation of Western Sahara. This is not good. We're all shocked by this, and, and I can imagine that the European population is shocked by this, and rightfully so. So we should use this moment to go to the bottom and improve the uh, internal procedures. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In the nation's capital, a House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection is holding its final public hearing today ahead of the expected release of its report Wednesday. The committee is reportedly expected to issue criminal referrals against President Trump and others. Also today in Washington, D.C., jury selection begins in the federal trial of former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio and four other senior members of the white nationalist group nearly two years after the deadly insurrection. Prosecutors charged the defendants with seditious conspiracy, conspiring to obstruct an official proceeding and other offenses. Meanwhile, Friday, Douglas Jensen of Iowa was sentenced to five years in prison for taking part in the Capitol attack. Separately, another rioter, Tennessee man Edward Kelly, was charged with plotting to assassinate the federal agents who investigated him. Kelly was already facing charges for assaulting a police officer. In Texas, the mayor of El Paso has declared a state of emergency over concerns the city won't be able to provide shelter and resources to the growing number of asylum seekers arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border. An average of over 2,400 daily migrants have been apprehended by border authorities in El Paso in recent days. Local shelters are beyond capacity, with many asylum seekers forced to sleep on the streets in freezing winter temperatures. This is El Paso's Democratic mayor, Oscar Leeser beginning that I would call it when I felt that either our uh, 
asylum seekers or our community was not safe. And I really believe that today our asylum seekers are not safe as we have hundreds and hundreds on the streets. And that's not the way we want to treat people. And um, by calling it a state of emergency, it gives us the ability today to be able to do things we couldn't do until we called it. And that's our shelters and put people in shelters and make sure that they're safe. This comes as the Trump-era pandemic policy, Title 42, is set to end Wednesday after a federal appeals court refused to postpone this week's deadline following challenges from Republicans. Title 42 has been used to expel over 2 million migrants from the southern border, blocking them from seeking asylum and pushing them back into Mexico, where migrants face dangerous and inhumane conditions, including torture and kidnappings. The policy forced asylum seekers to use deadly routes along the U.S.-Mexico border to enter the U.S as many are fleeing violence, poverty, and the catastrophic impacts of the climate crisis. Thousands are now hoping they'll be safely allowed into the U.S. after Title 42 ends to finally pursue asylum. In Montreal, Canada, delegates from nearly 200 nations have wrapped up the U.N. Biodiversity Summit, known as COP15, with an agreement to protect at least 30 percent of the Earth's land and oceans for wildlife by 2030. The landmark agreement seeks to halt the Earth's sixth major mass extinction event currently underway due to human activity. As part of the deal, indigenous communities will have an increased role in protecting wildlife. Lands inhabited by indigenous peoples hold 80 percent of the world's remaining biodiversity. The World Wildlife Fund called the agreement a win for people and planet. But the Wildlife Conservation Society criticized it for focusing on 2050 deadlines, writing, quote, that'll be far too late for us to halt and reverse biodiversity loss and address related challenges such as climate change, they said. In Peru, mass protests continue following the ouster and jailing of President Pedro Castillo, with at least 25 protesters killed by the police and military. The Peruvian education and culture ministers have resigned in protest of the killings. Patricia Correa, Peru's outgoing education minister, said on Twitter, quote, the death of compatriots has no justification. State violence cannot be disproportionate and cause death, unquote. Peru remains under a nationwide state of emergency, suspending many constitutional rights and imposing curfews. Newly installed Peruvian President Dina Boluarte is resisting calls to step down. I'm only fulfilling the constitutional mandate. There's a group saying, Dina, to step down. But what will be solved by my quitting? Is the problem solved? The problem won't be solved. We will be firm until Congress approves to bring forward elections. Iranian authorities have raided the home of one of Iran's most famous actors and arrested her after she expressed solidarity with a man recently put to death for crimes allegedly committed during nationwide protests. Tarna Aladusti faces charges of publishing, quote, false and distorted content that incited riots. Her Instagram page has since been suspended. Before her arrest, she shared a photo of herself with her hair uncovered in violation of Iran's mandatory hijab law. Aladusti is best known internationally for her starring role in The Salesman, which won an Oscar in 2017 for Best Foreign Language Film. 
In Tunisia, calls are mounting for President Kais Saied to step down after a record low turnout in Saturday's parliamentary elections, which was boycotted by 12 political parties. Tunisia's election authority updated a previous estimate of 8.8 percent turnout to just over 11 percent. The lack of voter participation comes after months of protests against Saied, who has been widely accused of a legislative coup as he's worked to consolidate power over the past year and a half. The renowned Mexican radio and television journalist Ciro Gomez Leva survived an assassination attempt Friday in Mexico City. Leva said two gunmen shot at him near his home, but that the armor of his truck stopped the bullets. This year alone, at least 13 journalists have been killed in Mexico, making it the deadliest country for reporters outside war zones. Elon Musk could be resigning as Twitter CEO after a poll on Twitter closed this morning with 57.5 percent voting yes to Musk's question, should I step down as head of Twitter? Twitter's embattled CEO said he would abide by the results when he posted the poll Sunday evening. The latest twist comes after another chaotic week for Twitter. On Sunday, a new policy banning users from sharing accounts on other platforms received swift backlash. The move was apparently undone just hours later. Earlier in the day, Elon Musk was pictured with Jared Kushner as the pair watched Argentina's victory over France in the World Cup final in Qatar. Meanwhile, Twitter reinstated the accounts of most of the journalists that suspended Thursday. On Friday, Elon Musk posted a Twitter poll in which a majority responded to the that the suspension should be lifted immediately. Musk had accused the reporters of endangering his life by linking to an account that provides a live tracker to his private jet. Twitter, however, required the journalists to either remove the offending tweets or lodge an appeal before they could start tweeting again. This is one independent journalist, Aaron Rupar, who was suspended by Twitter for one day speaking on MSNBC after his account was restored. I think what this will end up doing, which is unfortunate, is have a, a chilling effect on coverage of Elon Musk, because now, you know, if I'm in a position to either publish a newsletter or a tweet that is looking at him partially, um, I have to think twice and wonder if he can manipulate the terms of service kind of on the fly to come up with the reason to ban me. One reporter, Business Insider's Lynette Lopez, is still blocked on Twitter. She has reported critically for Elon Musk and his businesses for years. Meanwhile, officials from France, Germany, the UK, the European Union and the United Nations condemn Twitter's crackdown on journalism. In criminal justice news, Attorney General Merrick Garland Friday instructed federal prosecutors to end disparities in the way they handle offenses involving crack cocaine and powder cocaine. Rights groups hailed the news. The ACLU called a, quote, an important move toward ending the racist, unjust sentencing disparity that's devastated black communities, unquote. Advocates are urging the Senate to pass the Equal Act, which provides retroactive relief to previously convicted people. The bill has already overwhelmingly passed the House. Here in New York, Governor Kathy Hochul has signed two new animal rights legislation bills into law. One bill bans the sale of cats, dogs and rapids in pet stores and a crackdown on so-called puppy mills, high-volume breeding centers that churn out animals for profit. Another new law bans the sale of cosmetics that have been newly tested on animals, including rabbits, guinea pigs and other rodents. The bill's co-sponsor, New York State Senator Alessandra Biaggi, said, quote, no no animal should ever have to face abuse or unsafe conditions, and this legislation makes it clear that New York will not tolerate their mistreatment, she said. 
In Philadelphia, a judge granted Mumi Abu-Jamal's lawyer 60 days to examine all the evidence uncovered in recent years that supporters say could finally help release the journalist and former Black Panther, who spent 41 years in prison after being convicted of murdering a police officer. This is professor and filmmaker Johanna Fernandez, who's been campaigning for years to free Mumi Abu-Jamal. There are documents that emerged recently as early as January 2019, which clearly suggests that the main witnesses in this case were bribed. A letter by Robert Chobert, the star witness in the case, who said that he saw what happened and he allegedly saw Lumia, he wrote a letter with his handwriting We'll speak with CUNY professor Johanna Fernandez later in the broadcast. And over a thousand Starbucks workers from a hundred stores went on a three-day strike from Friday through Sunday to protest the mega-change union-busting efforts. It's the largest coordinated labor action by Starbucks workers. 270 locations have voted to unionize in just a year, but the company's waged an escalating anti-union campaign has refused to bargain with its workers in good faith. This is a former Starbucks worker in Anderson, South Carolina. Carolina, who was fired along with five other workers in retaliation for their organizing efforts. Starbucks is doubling down on its union busting tactics, so we are out here doubling down on our strikes. Starbucks continues to withhold benefits from its union stores, like credit card tipping, but gives it to non-unionized stores. They also are cutting our hours and targeting union employees by cutting their hours and withholding benefits from them so they can't receive Starbucks benefits. We're out here together in solidarity, standing against the company as they make billions of dollars, but as our employees fail to scrape by and struggle to pay their bills. So we're out here standing up against a billion-dollar corporation. Unionized workers are asking customers to refrain from buying Starbucks gift cards this holiday season in a show of support for their organizing campaign. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Texas, where the Democratic mayor of El Paso has declared a state of emergency over concerns the city won't be able to provide shelter and resources to the growing number of asylum seekers arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border. An average of over 2,400 migrants are now being apprehended daily by border authorities along the border near El Paso. Local shelters are beyond capacity, with many asylum seekers forced to sleep on the streets under freezing winter temperatures. This is El Paso's Democratic mayor, Oscar Leeser. As we see the increase in asylum seekers into our community, and we see the temperatures dropping, and we know that uh, Title 42 looks like it's uh, going to be called back on um, Wednesday, we felt there was proper time today to call a state of emergency. And the reason why we're doing it is because I said from the beginning, that I would call it when I felt that either our uh, asylum seekers or our community was not safe. And I really believe that today our asylum seekers are not safe as we have hundreds and hundreds on the streets. And that's not the way we want to treat people. And um, by calling it a state of emergency, it gives us the ability today to be able to do things we couldn't do until we called it, and that's our shelters, and put people in shelters and make sure that they're safe. But we have ordinances that uh, keeps us from putting a lot of people in certain buildings. We can do that now if we can do it a safe way with uh, fire department and, uh, and proper personnel. 
That was Mayor Oscar Leeser of El Paso, Texas, speaking Saturday. During his remarks, he referenced Title 42, the Trump-era pandemic policy that's been used to block over 2 million migrants from seeking asylum in the U.S. The Biden administration is expected to stop enforcing Title 42 on Wednesday. But the fate of the policy may be decided by the Supreme Court. On Friday, a group of U.S. states with Republican attorneys general lost in their latest legal attempt to keep 42 in place. The states are expected to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court today. On Saturday, El Paso's mayor, Lee Sirk, talked more about the ending of Title 42. We know that the influx on Wednesday will be incredible. It will be huge uh, talking to um, some of our federal partners. They really believe that on Wednesday our numbers go, will go from 2,500 to four, five, or maybe 6,000. And uh, when I asked them, I said, do you believe that you guys can handle it today? The answer was no. When I got an answer of no, that meant we needed to do something and do something right away. We go now to El Paso, where we're joined by Fernando Garcia, the founder and executive director of the El Paso, Texas-based Border Network for Human Rights. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Fernando. Can you explain what's happening on the ground, what needs to happen? I mean, it is getting cold there, uh, maybe even colder than New York. We're talking 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Hey, good morning, Amy. Uh, definitely, yes. I mean, this is uh, what I consider the perfect storm happening right now at the border, specifically here in El Paso, because we have two crises coming together. The first one is the humanitarian crisis. I mean, we have uh, uh, thousands, uh, hundreds uh, of members of um, refugee communities and asylum seekers in both sides of the river, in Juarez and El Paso, in the streets, at the river, in, uh, exposed to these freezing temperatures. Right now, we are we have like 32 degrees right now, so it's going to go lower. So. We have, uh, the other day, actually visited some of these uh, families in El Paso and had children without uh, winter clothing. I mean, most of them come from Venezuela and, and uh, uh, Ecuador and Nicaragua, and they are not used to this kind of weather, but they are not prepared to deal with it. So I think what we're seeing, it is uh, the failure, uh, dramatic failure of multiple systems, both in Mexico and in the United States. So it is a desperate situation. In the other hand, though, we have also the crisis of, uh, of the lack of fundamental welcoming infrastructure. And we've been talking about that for years, and nobody did anything. So that's how we come to be in this situation. So can you talk about what's happening on Wednesday, the Title 42, to explain it more fully um, and the possibility that the Supreme Court will insist it remain? Let, let, let's remind ourselves what happened with Title 42. For more than, I would say, to almost three years already, this was a strategy implemented first by the Trump administration as an anti-immigrant, anti-refugee strategy, where actually immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers looking for protection, uh, they would expel right away when they were caught at the border. So with no due process, no no. Uh, uh, hearings, uh, no legal support, so people went sent back mostly to Mexico, to, to, to very dangerous conditions. So that created a lot of pressure on, uh, on, on these uh, refugees and migrants and asylum seekers. As a matter of fact, last year was one of the worst 
years for migrants dying at the border. Almost 1,000 migrants died while crossing the border. It's a, it's a human rights crisis. But much of that is in connection uh, to Title 42. Unfortunately, uh, the administration, the current administration, Biden administration, continue with it. Uh, we did not understand uh, uh, still today why they make the political decision to continue with something that was so bad, so illegal in, in many ways. When I say illegal, it's because it was breaking international law. Uh, it was rejecting refugees and asylum seekers. It was not guaranteeing basic due process for people. And however, this administration refused to end it. And, and to be honest, I don't know if, uh, if, if at the end of the day we're going to be having a, a full repeal of Title 42 because including this administration to the Department of Justice appeal the elimination of Title 42. So we're in a very uncertain situation. But however, we have uh, all of these families, all of these uh, children, women uh, at the border in a very difficult condition. Let's hear the voices of some Nicaraguans near El Paso seeking refuge in the United States. After going through so many things, we will finally be fine after being kidnapped and going hungry. We hope to be better. After what happened to us, we are afraid. I feel that I will not be able to live in peace. I want to stay here in Mexico working, but I won't be able because of what happened to me. We want the United States government to help us, to help us as they have helped us so far. My colleagues and all the people who are here because we need that help. We are asking President Biden because he's the only president who will help us. We know he will open the door for us. So what do you think Fernando Garcia should be happening right now? Uh, do you expect, as the networks have been reporting, that if this were lifted on Wednesday, that we're talking about three, four, five thousand people coming over the border a day? And also, can you talk about what is the crisis? Are the migrants the crisis or is the lack of U.S. immigration policy the crisis? Yeah. No, no. I, well, you know, we already have. Uh, an increase of migrants coming to the border, independently of uh, Title 42. Title 42 has created a lot of pressure of many of these migrants on the whole system itself. So it is unfair to say that now there's going to be more people while, while they were coming already. Actually, most of the Venezuelans were carried in transit when the Biden announced the new Venezuelan policy that uh, they could apply from Venezuela for asylum, while many of them uh, tens of dozens of them were in transit and they were stuck in Mexico. So they are getting their way to the border. I was talking to, to them uh, the other day in Juarez precisely, and they were telling the story about how they are fleeing their countries, either by economic depression, but also uh, because of what they consider a political repression and uh, in, in, in violence and persecution. So most of the people that are coming to the border, they are they are not trying to sneak into the into the United States. They are being being uh, actually they are turned over to border patrol themselves. Actually, voluntarily they cross the border to say, "I'm here. I want to apply for asylum." And still, in those cases, many of them, actually almost a million and a half, maybe more, well, expelled in the last three years. So um, no, I mean uh, the answer is we don't have an invasion the way that some Republicans and some uh, uh, white nationalists. Uh, uh, people is, is talking about. What we have is a fundamental failure of the immigration system. It's been broken. No administration in the past, not this one, has done anything to fix it. 
But I think I wanted to talk about what is happening right now and what do we need. I mean, we talk about, yes, ending Title 42. We agree with that. But also two years ago, we talked to this administration to start putting welcoming infrastructure, building welcoming centers. And we call it the new Ellis Island welcoming centers along the border. So they could handle situations like this. Uh, they, centers where they can provide shelter, uh, legal support, uh, to provide transportation and maybe uh, guidance and information where all of these people don't have to be in the street looking for a bus ticket in the middle of the cold weather. So the fact is that this administration didn't do it. And actually, they decided to stick Title 42 as the only strategy. And right now, there is no strategy to deal with it. So I think we're very concerned that they're expecting that local communities and local officials and local cities will resolve this, which that is not the case. That, that is, it, it is unsustainable. It, it, the federal government should stop right away with massive resources, with a lot of people here in El Paso, but also in the rest of the border. El Paso's deputy city manager, Mario D'Agostino, said the emergency declaration will give El Paso options to transport migrants to other locations. This is what he said. The communications we have we had with the state is they're willing to bus people to locations, to whether it's New York City, Chicago, whatever that destination is. We're working on them to add locations so we can work with those NGOs, so we can move people to a travel hub. Right now, I can tell you that as we're working through the community, we're working with the NGOs and we're working with the migrants themselves. The only people we're referring to the state is somebody who's going that direction. So that's how we're doing that. We're doing that piece to make sure that it's individuals who are choosing to go to that next city, wherever it may be, to get their transportation from there. Now, again, you know, we're talking about a Democratic administration in El Paso. I think just down the road from us today, Port Authority, uh, scores of migrants uh, uh, will be coming off of buses. Uh, Fernando Garcia, can you comment on this busing policy and overall um, what uh, has to happen right now? So, listen, I think uh, I agree with the declaration uh, of the city of El Paso, which is not an invasion declaration. I need to be very clear about that, because in Texas, Another declaration is being promoted, and that's been the Governor Abbott's declaration, that he's pushing uh, cities uh, and counties along the border to, to declare that there is a, a, an invasion of criminals. And therefore, he's putting a lot of resources, uh, like state resources, to actually detain and arrest and, and deport people, which is clearly legal for, for the state to do. So the El Paso declaration is not linked to that governor's declaration. However, I'm very concerned about the city start connecting with the resources of the state because Greg Abbott is going to use it politically. I mean, he's been using the issues of immigration uh, since before the elections and right after the election because he has political goals and aims. So he's using immigrants as a scapegoat since he continued calling them criminals and in uh, a threat to the, to, to, to the United States. So I don't believe that the state solution is a solution. I, be, I believe that the city it is it's trying to do something better. But I, but I think if there is any busing of migrants, I think that should be optional and sh that should provide alternatives for migrants. So they need to go where they need to be, with their family members, with the sponsors, not where politicians want to send them. So overall, I, I think uh, we have said it in the past, if we don't fix it right now, we don't put massive resources, we're going to have a lot of people suffering. But also in the long term, I mean, this, this, this wave of immigration is going to go up and then down again and go up again. 
So if we don't have long-term fixes, we don't have immigration reform, fixing the asylum process, which has been broken uh, in, in damage by, by the previous administration, I think we're going to continue seeing these crises, so-called crises in, in the future. Fernanda Garcia, founder and executive director of the El Paso, Texas-based Border Network for Human Rights. Uh, the mayor of El Paso, a Democratic mayor, has declared an emergency, a state of emergency in El Paso. Coming up, supporters of imprisoned journalist Mumia Abu-Jamal are hailing a decision by a Philadelphia judge to order the local DA's office to share all its files in the case. Could this lead to a new trial? Stay with us. Those lives were mine to love and cherish, to guard and guide along life's way. Oh, God forbid that one should perish, that one at last should go. Children Home by Dolly Parton, Linda Ronstadt, and Emmylou Harris. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Supporters of imprisoned journalist Mumia Abu-Jamal are hailing a decision by a Philadelphia judge to order the Philly DA's office to share all of its files with Mumia Abu-Jamal's defense team on the case. Judge Lucretia Clemens gave prosecutors and the defense 60 days to review the files, many of which Abu Jamal's team has never seen. The judge is then expected to rule on Mumia Abu Jamal's request for a new trial. Abu Jamal is a former Black Panther journalist, has been imprisoned for over 40 years. He was convicted in 1982 of the murder of police officer Daniel Faulkner. He spent much of his years on death row. But his supporters have long claimed prosecutors withheld key evidence and bribed or coerced witnesses to lie. Documents found in the district attorney's office in 2019 show Mumia Abu-Jamal's trial was tainted by judicial bias and police and prosecutorial misconduct. The judge's surprise ruling came just days after a U.N. working group submitted an amicus brief urging the judge to grant Mumia Abu-Jamal a new trial. To talk more about the case, we're joined by Johanna Fernandez, Associate Professor of History at City University of New York's Baruch College, one of the coordinators of the campaign to bring Mumia home. She spoke Friday outside the courthouse. There are documents that emerged recently as early as January 2019, which clearly suggest that the main witnesses in this case were bribed. A letter 
Johanna Fernandez joins us now. She's also executive producer and writer of the film Justice on Trial, the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal, and the editor of Writing on the Wall, Selected Prison Writings of Mumia Abu-Jamal. Professor Fernandez, it's great to have you back. Um, so why don't you talk about the scene in the courtroom? Uh, we interviewed an Arkansas trial judge who was calling for Mumia Abu-Jamal to be released last week, um, and he was particularly talking about issues issues like the one you just mentioned outside the courthouse, the issue of bribery, if you could explain that. And once again, the judge himself in the original trial, Judge Sabo, referring to Mumia Abu-Jamal with the N-word. Good morning, Amy, and thank you so very much for covering this issue. Uh, that, that letter, handwritten by Robert Chobert, is really the smoking gun, if you will, in this case. It's exculpatory evidence. At uh, this hearing, the prosecutor argued uh, somehow that it is pro forma, it is customary to give witnesses money. But our attorneys corrected the record. They said, well, yes, you give witnesses money for missed work and for transportation. However, Robert Schobert um, was driven to work by police nightly. He was a cab driver and he was held in a hotel and all of his expenses were paid and he was um, cared for by the police during the trial. So what money exactly was he being compensated for? This is bribery. He would have said in the letter, I was promised compensation for travel, but that could not have been the case. Um, another thing that uh, was raised in the um, in the hearing by our attorneys is the significance of circumstantial evidence and inference. This was a man who was driving with two DWIs and who was driving without a license. He said that he was parked directly behind the police car, the car of Officer Faulkner, who was killed that night. But photographs show that he was not where he said he was, and a person who Who's driving with two DWIs and um, a driver's license that's been canceled is not going to want to park anywhere near um, a police officer's car. So the record suggests that Robert Chobert was bribed um, for fingering Mumia. And the judge, Judge Sabo, what he was, what he said, accordingly, uh, reportedly overheard by the stenographer in the original trial. Terry Moore Carter was a stenographer at the time, working with a different judge, and her judge used the same courtroom that the lead judge in this case, Albert Sabo. Um, used. And this was during a shift of uh, cases. And Terry Moore Carter, the white stenographer, overheard the um, major judge in this case, Albert Sabo, say, quote, I'm going to help them fry the N-word, referring to how he was going to instruct the jury in this case. Um, the amicus brief that was filed by the working group of experts of um, people of African descent, said that it is the responsibility of the state to remediate 
decades, centuries of racism, that there was no time bar on this and that it is the responsibility of this court to right this wrong. The only way to right this wrong is to release a man who was wrongfully on death row for 28 and a half years. A federal judge ruled that his death sentence was obtained unconstitutionally in 2010, uh, and he was released to serve a life in prison without parole. You'd think that after 28 and a half years of wrongful sentence on death row, you'd get out of prison. And can you tell me more about Cynthia White? She was another witness. And what apparently is in these boxes that were found in the DA's office um, and the significance of the fact they were found, what, in 2019? So they were found in January 2019, and what we see is a string of documents wherein the lead prosecutor in the case, Joe McGill, is tracking what is happening to Cynthia White's other cases. She was a sex worker and had over 36 um, violations pending against her. Uh, so she was facing upwards of 20 years in prison, and he was consulting with other prosecutors, ensuring that before they made any decision in Cynthia White's case, they consulted with him. So there was clearly some kind of bargain made between Cynthia White and the prosecutor, Joe McGill, that if she fingered Mumia, she would get off and would not have to serve time in prison. I wanted to go to Judge Wendell Griffin. We spoke to him last week. He's a Division Five judge of the Sixth Circuit in Arkansas. He spent more than 10 years as a judge in the State Court of Appeals. He's retiring at the end of this year after almost a quarter of a century on the bench. Uh, this is what he had to say about why um, he's become a prominent voice, another trial judge, just like the trial judge in Philadelphia but he's in Little Rock, why he's become a prominent voice for a new trial on the release of Mumia Abu-Jamal. We have to ask ourselves the question, why is this journalist, why is this black activist not free? And why is it so hard for a judge to say, hey, we've got the law that requires him to be free, I'm going to follow the law and declare him free. And if the Commonwealth wants to retry him, they can do so. If the Commonwealth decides we can't retry him because the evidence is no longer there, people have passed away, witnesses have forgotten information, then that is not Mamiya's fault. That is the fault of prosecutors, and Mamiya should not be imprisoned because, A, he had a pretense of a trial in the first place, and B, because, for some reasons, bloodlust or the desire to keep a black activist journalist in prison 
means that we don't want to do what's right. Again, that is sitting Arkansas trial judge Wendell Griffin uh, speaking to us from Little Rock, Arkansas. The significance of this judge speaking out. And then I want to go back to the beginning before we end. And what happened on Friday, what you expected to happen, what the judge had um, said would happen on Friday, but then what did happen? Well, she had promised on October 26th that she would make a decision in this case on December 16th. And in fact, she issued an intent um, to dismiss opinion uh, on October 26th and said, we will make a final decision on December 16th because this case has gone on for too long. But the facts of this case, she now understands, merit um, adjudication. And the prosecutor in this case said over and over again, these issues have been litigated. Um, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court litigated this issue. Why are you bringing this up now? What the prosecution fails to understand is that new evidence has emerged that that office has hidden for 41 years. That is the reason why these previous courts were unable to um, to grant Mumia relief, uh, not to mention the fact that the judges in this case have historically been funded by the Fraternal Order of Police, the same organization that has attempted to keep Mumia behind bars and the same organization that attempted to execute him and make sure that he was executed when he was on death row. We the just... fact... Go ahead. The fact that a sitting judge has spoken out in this case is tremendous. It speaks to the validity of the new evidence, the new exculpatory evidence uh, in this case. And finally, we just have 30 seconds, but can you remind our viewers and listeners and readers why these boxes were discovered in 2019? What changed? Where were they? Well, Another judge, Leon Tucker, was hearing um, the issue of judicial bias in the case, that Ronald Castile was, in fact, funded by the Fraternal Order of Police and named a man of the year, the same judge that was hearing Mumia's appeals. He should have recused himself. In the process of that hearing, these new boxes emerged, and they were hidden in the underworld of the prosecutor's office. Six boxes with exculpatory evidence. The judge currently has asked us to look at all of the boxes, 32, maybe 200, but we have enough evidence here to clearly um, give Mumia at least an evidentiary hearing, a new trial, or set him free. Joanna Fernandez, Associate Professor of History at CUNY's Baruch College here in New York City, one of the coordinators of the campaign to bring Mumia home. Coming up, we look at how Qatar and Morocco have been caught bribing members of the European Parliament in a scandal that's rocked Brussels and put European Parliament members behind bars. Stay with us. Argentina nací, tierra de Diego y Leonel, de los pibes de Malvinas que jamás olvidaré. No te lo puedo explicar, porque no vas a entender las finales que perdimos, cuántos años la lloré. 
pero eso se terminó, porque en el Maracaná, la final color azul, cada volvió a ganar papá. Music by La Mosca Tsetse, an Argentine band, uh, in honor of uh, Argentina winning the World Cup the first time in, oh, something like 30, 40 years. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. While the World Cup has ended, with Argentina defeating France in the finals, we turn now to look at a bribery scandal involving Qatar, the host of the World Cup that's rocked the European Parliament. Earlier this month, authorities in Belgium raided the homes and offices of European Parliament lawmakers, accusing them of accepting bribes from government officials in Qatar, as well as, as this isn't as um, uh, being reported as much, uh, as well as Morocco. The raids recovered hundreds of thousands of euros in cash. Among those arrested was the European Parliament vice president, Eva Kaili of Greece. In a lead-up to the World Cup, she repeatedly defended Qatar against critics who pointed to the monarchy's dismal record on workers' rights and its persecution of LGBTQ people. The scandals also exposed how Morocco has tried to lobby and bribe members of the European Parliament in an attempt to increase support for its illegal occupation of Western Sahara, which is known by many as Africa's last colony. Another person arrested was former European Parliament member Antonio Panzeri of Italy. He was accused of, quote, intervening politically with members working at the European Parliament for the benefit of Qatar and Morocco. We're joined now by two guests. Francesco Battagli is a former United Nations mission and special representative of Kofi Annan for the Western Sahara. Ana Gomez is a retired Portuguese diplomat. She was a member of the European Parliament from 2004 to 2019, where she was part of the Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats. She's joining us from Portugal. Um, Ana Gomez, let's begin with you. Can ex you explain to a global audience what this investigation investigation is all about um, when it comes to both Qatar and not as well known to Morocco? Well, um, the, the authorities of Belgium, the judicial authorities of Belgium um, that have done this investigation, apparently led by um, uh, suspicions regarding uh, peddling of interests by Qatar through uh, a number of people, including uh, this vice president of the European Parliament, Eva Kaili, uh, a Greek member of Parliament, and um, and other people, namely uh, um, working with a, a human rights NGO called uh, Fight Impunity that had been funded by a former uh, the former MEP Antonio Panzeri. The investigation regarding Qatar, the suspicions about Qatar, actually are leading more and more to the fact that there is a network operating in the European Parliament for long, actually um, established by Morocco. So Qatar is not the center of, of the investigation. It looks more and more that Morocco should be the center of this investigation because, indeed, um, 
relatives, for instance, of Panzeri, the, the former MEP who, who established this NGO to cover up for this for this um, uh, uh, corruption network. Uh, Panzeri had his wife and his daughter arrested in Italy at the request of the judicial authorities of Belgium because they were aware and they were benefiting since long from uh, uh, money sent by uh, Morocco. And um, and uh, apparently this is leading uh, to a network that was indeed established and directed by the secret service of, the, of Morocco. I am not surprised. I was not surprised. As soon as I heard that Mr. Panzeri was involved in this case regarding Qatar, I immediately suspicious, was suspicious and uh, said it publicly that this would lead to Morocco. Because for all these years, three mandates in which I have served in the European Parliament, served exactly together with Panzeri in the same political group, we had a, a number of, of disputes exactly because of Western Sahara. All the time, he was um, trying to protect the interests of Morocco, preventing that we would focus on human rights in Morocco itself and, of course, the human rights of the people of Western Sahara, which have their basic and number one human right, which is the right to self-determination violated by Morocco since long. Um, I wanted to bring Francesco Batali into the conversation, <laughs> former U.N. Special Representative for Western Sahara. Um, talk more about—I mean, you've got the bribing of European Parliament members now behind bars uh, on Qatar workers' rights issues, stopping uh, resolutions going forward, condemning Qatar's human rights issues, and Morocco. Um, and talk about what this bribery has meant over the years, especially when it comes to trade agreements. And remember, you're talking to a global audience. Many are not even aware of Morocco's illegal occupation of Western Sahara. Sure. Thank you. Good morning. Um, just to um, reinforce what was said by the previous speaker, um, there is a cluster, a sort of group of friends um, revolving around the European Parliament uh, and parliamentarians themselves that for a long time have been channeling uh, this uh, illicit um, interests of, uh, of their sponsors uh, in a way to um, sustain their agendas within uh, the Parliament. On the part of Morocco, and this group of friends is very um, articulate in the sense, not just in terms of numbers or, or uh, you know, level or stature of the uh, participants, but they do a very thorough job. In other words, they don't just channel, you know, money or resources. They also facilitate the identification of parliamentarians that could be because of the nature of the functions and responsibilities within the parliament can be of greater use to to their clients and uh, create occasions where these parliamentarians can be approached through social gathering, through uh, uh, visiting missions and so on. So it's a very articulate system, which includes also monitoring the behavior of parliamentarians that have been bribed to make sure that, you know, they vote or behave or lobby in line with uh, what is expected of them. Now, when it comes to Morocco, as uh, which was rightly said, 
Uh, Morocco has a long tradition of a very aggressive presence, uh, both in terms of bilateral relations with key countries or in international fora such as the UN and the European Union in support of its agenda. Um, and this indeed has uh, had a tremendous impact uh, on two dimensions that have already been hinted. Uh, one, of course, in the um, sphere of economic and trade relations, and we are talking about the European Union in this particular instance, um, where um, uh, repeatedly, uh, though the uh, Morocco has been trying to uh, include the territory of Western Sahara in this uh, agricultural fisheries agreements with the European Union. This is very important because uh, uh, Western Sahara is uh, very rich in, uh, you know, um, fishing fields of, uh, of Western Sahara, among the richest in the world. Um, Western Sahara is a major producer of phosphates that are extremely important for the production of fertilizers and so on. So whenever uh, Morocco was signing any trade agreement with uh, the European Union. It was very important that this agreement should include the territory of Western Sahara. And uh, this is where the lobbying effort of the friends of Morocco became extremely important, so much so that twice the agreements between the European Union and Morocco included the territory and resources of Western Sahara, and twice the European Court nullified, declared these agreements invalid. And yet again, the parliament is reviving an effort to sign a fishery agreement with uh, Morocco, including Western Sahara. So the, uh, actually, there's also this attitude of the uh, European parliament is, uh, to say at least, uh, revealing of a certain extreme strength of Morocco in, the, in that forum. Now, on the question of Western Sahara, Western Sahara is a part of the greater lobbying effort of Morocco, not just in, uh, in, uh, in the EU, but also vis-a-vis -vis the United Nations, because basically what uh, we have in Western Sahara is an illegal occupation of a, of a former colony. When Spain left in uh, 75, 1975, Morocco occupied illegally in collusion with the Spanish authority the territory. Uh, under UN uh, Charter and international law, the Sahrawis should have been allowed a referendum for self-determination, which is the way it happened in many former colonies in Africa and elsewhere. This referendum was never held. Morocco doesn't allow this to be held, and it has since 1975 been occupying illegally this uh, territory. Um, so this is the context. In spite of that, and thanks to its lobbying effort, the Morocco has always been able to prevent the UN uh, to enforce uh, its obligation to allow for a self-determination uh, referendum, which are the main friends or supporters of Morocco in this uh, refusal to honor the international legality, are the influential members of the Security Council, such as the United States and France. In Europe, Spain, the former colonial master, Western Sahara, is also very supporting of uh, Morocco's uh, reluctance or refusal, indeed, to grant these people what is uh, owed to them. 
Um, speaking of 1975 and Morocco's illegal occupation of Western Sahara, Ana Gomez, um, that was the same year that Indonesia invaded East Timor, um, killing a third of the population, one of the worst genocides of the late 20th century. But the U.N. was able to sponsor a referendum in 1999 for East Timor. The people overwhelmingly voted for their freedom. And uh, Timor-Leste, uh, East Timor, is now an independent nation. Why has has the course of Western Sahara been so different? And is this bribery um, of European officials so, a part of that? Stressed by the previous speaker, the role of uh, st some states, the United States, France, and Spain in particular, in protecting the regime in Morocco and in, the, um, in, in supporting the regime in its uh, illegal occupation of Western Sahara. As I, I as a diplomat who have uh, worked a lot in the East Timor uh, liberation case, uh, when I entered the European Parliament in 2004, I was absolutely flabbergasted to see that uh, in the European Union people were treating um, Sahara as if didn't exist, as it was, if it was part of Morocco. And it's as if international law, and namely the, the, the right to self-determination, would not exist. And I started protesting, and I was uh, um, often um, uh, uh, overruled, so to say, because uh, we should not deny the interests of these uh, big states. And this was clear in these agreements on agriculture and on fisheries, that with the support of some members in the European Parliament, including myself, were brought to the courts, uh, European Courts of Justice, as it was mentioned, and the European Court of Justice very clearly established this was against international law. But still there is this persistence. And yes, for that persistence, apart from the governments of these uh, European states, and of course the protection of the United States as well, um, there are there is this network uh, inside the European Parliament trying to overrule people like myself who who, who put forward the arguments of international law and of human rights, and also even the security aspect. I myself, I went to Morocco, I went to Tinduf, to the refugee camps of Sahrawis. Uh, uh, I went to Layoun in a mission of the European Parliament, and I could sense um, the, the extreme security risks that uh, Europe in particular, but as well, of course, Africa and the world is facing by not helping this question of Western Sahara be settled as it was uh, settled in the case of Timor-Leste, with the rights of the people to determine what they what they want for the future to be uh, properly asserted through a referendum, as it was done in, in Timor-Leste. It's been uh, Morocco all these years was obstructing the referendum. And I was particularly stuck with this uh, security angle because, of course, you can imagine that such a dispute and uh, um, uh, uh, generations of uh, um, Sahrawis born in exile in Tinduf. In, uh, uh, in, we just have 15 in, seconds. Yeah, you know, the dangers are tremendous that this uh, will be hijacked by some terrorist groups. And so one more reason why Europe shouldn't uh, continue with this neglect for a, 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 
a conflict a conflict that needs to be sorted out according to the UN um, rule and international law and of course human rights. We're going to have to leave it there. Ana Gomez, retired Portuguese diplomat, former Portuguese ambassador to Indonesia and former member of the European Parliament. And Francesco Batali, former UN special representative in Western Sahara. That does it for our show. Go to democracynow.org for our documentaries on East Timor and Western Sahara. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.